Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Westminster and beyond is gripped by the COVID inquiry and the revelations of how Downing Street was functioning, or rather wasn't, during the height of the pandemic. Now, while we think there's much to agree with in Dominic Cummings' analysis of what was wrong at the centre of government at the start of the pandemic, his WhatsApp messages and some of his other views, for example, on what constitutes misogyny, have left jaws on the floor. So what have we learned? How unusual was Boris Johnson's way of running government? And what needs to be done to ensure government doesn't, in the words of Boris Johnson, descend again into a disgusting orgy of narcissism? The COVID inquiry has no doubt made for rather awkward viewing for Rishi Sunak, and a new report from the IFG is hardly likely to provide a happy distraction, because we've just released Performance Tracker 2023, our annual stock take of nine key public services, which we publish with SIPFA. The findings are not, it's fair to say, all that positive. So what's the problem? What comes next? And what should any party aspiring to be in government after the next election be thinking about? We'll talk to one of the report's authors. What Rishi Sunak would actually like us to talk about is artificial intelligence and his global AI summit at Bletchley. The world's leaders, or at least some of their deputies, have been in Britain to discuss what needs to be done to tackle a technology that could end up taking our jobs, destroying humankind, or just being kind of useful. We'll take a look at what the summit achieved or didn't. All that to come. With me in the studio are a top IFG duo, Emma Norris, our Deputy Director and Inquiry Watcher-in-Chief. Hi, Emma. Hi, Hannah. And Nick Davis, who leads all our work on public services, is here again. Hi, Nick. Hi, Hannah. Now, I'm delighted that this week we're joined by Jim Reid, health reporter at the BBC. Hi, Jim. Hi, Hannah. So let's start with the main story of the week, the COVID inquiry. But where to begin? Jim, you have been following the inquiry closely. Can you give us a summary of who we've heard from this week? So it was uh, a week that was really devoted to civil servants and people working in Downing Street to begin with. So we had Martin Reynolds, who's the former PPS to to Boris Johnson during much of COVID. Uh, And that afternoon on Monday, also Imran Shafi, who's another person working in the back room in the private office. Then on Tuesday came the big drama of the week because we had Lee Kane, who we were meant to hear from, the former director of communications, of course, on the Monday, but because I think it's the first time that I've been covering this inquiry since June and the first time I've had to push a witness into the next day because things were running over so much. So we heard from Lee Kane on Tuesday and, of course, Dominic Cummings, who took all the headlines with, well, uh, choice of language, rushing to bleep and to warn people on the news channels across the country as, as Mr Cummings was giving evidence on the Tuesday. Uh, and then further in the, further on in the week, we had Helen McNamara, who of course worked closely with Dominic Cummings and was talked about in, in fairly stringent terms in some WhatsApps by Mr Cummings on the Tuesday. And then, I, I don't know whether this was planned or not, but then she was giving evidence on the, on the Wednesday morning. And then from my point of view as a, as a health reporter, I was really interested in David Halpern's evidence on, on the Wednesday afternoon. He was, of course, the person leading the, the nudge unit, the behavioural inside unit in Downing Street. And then today, as we're recording this, we've just heard evidence from Simon Stevens, who is the man in charge, or the chief executive at least, of, of NHS England through much of the pandemic. So you know, wide variety of, of witnesses and certainly some, some drama this week, Hannah. And did it play out as you expected it to? What, what were your main takeaways? Well, it's difficult. Covering it for the BBC is difficult because you know that a lot of the attention is going to be grabbed by the language being used in WhatsApps and also in these diary entries as well. You know, Patrick Valance, Sir Patrick Valance's uh, diary entries, again, getting a lot of attention this week. If you look to the front pages the next day, often it would be not so much the testimony that was being talked about, but the documents that were being brought up on, on screen. So as well as the kind of infighting within Downing Street that became the, the kind of focus of 
that day on uh, on Tuesday when Dominic Cummings was giving evidence. So I also thought some of the stuff that came out uh, around the Patrick Vallance diaries about Boris Johnson's apparent attitude to the pandemic in the, in the second half of that year, you know, in September, October 2020 was really interesting. I think it's, it's difficult with those diary entries because you're seeing a very partial example of what is going on. And until we actually hear Sir Patrick give evidence in a few weeks' time, I'm wondering how much you could really draw from what we're hearing. I think the point, the overall point that he's trying to make and that the inquiry is trying to make with these diary entries is that there is some inconsistency in decision-making by Downing Street and Boris Johnson. So, you know, one minute, he's very keen to open up the economy. He uses language that I'd imagine he never expected to be made public, according to these diary entries, talking about how older people might need to catch the virus so younger people can essentially go back to work. But then often, if you read into these diary entries, he'll, according to Patrick Balance, at least, that the, the view can often switch very rapidly. So, you know, later on in the same entry, Boris Johnson and the Downing Street team can be talking about moving different areas of, of England up tiers and so on. So it's really difficult to know exactly what to make of them. So we had the, the documentary evidence on one hand, and of course we had all the all the testimony uh, on the other, and that came through, I think, really from Helen McNamara's evidence on, on Wednesday, in very calm, measured terms, talking about what it was like to work in Downing Street through that time, and especially what it was like for for women, I think, in, in in that environment. And I don't think we'd heard it, really heard, at least in the mainstream media, that talked about in that way before. It was really interesting to hear that. Yeah, I agree. That was that was really interesting. Emma, just to pick up on something else that, that Jim was saying there, I mean, it's been really noticeable, hasn't it, that we've seen the inquiry team really digging into the sort of WhatsApp evidence, the diary entries, as Jim was saying. But what we what they haven't then done is show the corollary in terms of the official papers that presumably they've had disclosed to them where cabinet subsequently met or where decisions were officially taken to try to draw those lines and those links through. So they've they've talked about the extent to which policy was discussed in those informal ways. But they haven't then really tried to trace it through yet, I guess. So I think this is a really interesting point, actually. As you say, in the last week in particular, when we've had kind of key political advisers and, and officials in, there has been a lot of focus on and um, the more informal side of decision making, as you say, whether that's kind of WhatsApp diary entries and so on. And we've had a lot of, I guess, verbal testimony about whether there was a plan or wasn't a plan, um, who was responsible for that plan. But then what we haven't seen is on paper, well, how is it supposed to work? What are the rules that govern where responsibility for operational planning for key risks in the National Risk Register sits? Now, I think it's possible that we'll start to see some more of that coming out when, for instance, Matt Hancock gives evidence next month. A lot of the kind of questions around planning have seemed to sit with him. It was him who was providing reassurances that don't appear to have been met. And so I wonder whether it will come up in a bit more detail then. On the other hand, it might be that the inquiry team feel that they have enough kind of documentary evidence behind the scenes to help with their deliberations, that that's just not something they want to pursue in public hearings. But it certainly feels like there's been a, you know, a lack of balance on the kind of informal versus formal documentation that we're looking at. That's really interesting. And, and and what shocked you the most about the hearings this week? God, where to start? Um, I mean, look, obviously, the kind of the press focus has been on Cummings language and the toxicity of, of the workplace in number 10. And I think it is shocking. It's not new. I think we know the way that Cummings operates. You only have to follow his kind of Twitter account to see that. But seeing the way he was talking about close colleagues written down, I think was shocking to some degree. I think the lack of a plan 
has probably surprised me most. This isn't something new. It's a common kind of thread through Helen McNamara and Dominic Cummings' evidence. Uh, It's something that came out quite strongly in module one. But hearing Helen kind of set out, there was supposed to be a proper strategic plan for what you do in the event of a pandemic, a threat that had been right at the top of the risk register for years. And when it came down to it, there wasn't one in any more detail than just how you kind of handle the PR. I think that is just the most enormous failure of our system. And I really hope that one of the things that comes out of the inquiry is looking at how on earth that happened and how it should change. I think then just the other shocking thing is, and again, Helen McNamara used this phrase, the kind of the lack of humanity um, in the centre of government in this period, particularly focusing on those early months in January and February, when they were going for herd immunity but hadn't thought about the consequences for vulnerable people, didn't have any proper plans around shielding, were almost never following distancing rules themselves, even when people weren't able to go and see dying relatives in hospital. That gap between the thinking in the centre and people's lives was, I think, shocking to hear, particularly given I was in the room watching the testimony at the inquiry when Helen McNamara was giving her evidence. And you know, the public gallery is right next to the, the witness who's giving evidence. And in that gallery, you have people who have lost family members. They're often holding up photos of somebody that they have lost. And for those people having to sit there and listen to actually how ill-prepared the centre was and to some degree the level of callousness that decisions that had such an enormous impact on their lives, um, I think that is incredibly jarring. Yeah, I totally totally agree with that. And and Nick, in, in terms of the point Emma makes about how some of this stuff will have felt to the people who were there and were affected in terms of the, the health services, how do you think NHS staff and for that matter care home staff will be feeling when they listen to how much infighting there was in number 10, Matt Hancock, the health secretary or Simon Stevens, the, the boss of NHS England throughout much of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Emma. Certainly callousness, just for me, and I think for a lot of NHS staff, they'll be thinking just a fundamental lack of seriousness in terms of the tone, in terms of how decisions were made. I think the other thing that really struck me picking up on Helen McNamara's evidence was it was clearly a kind of sexist working environment, but also that the views of women or the particular impact of COVID on women just wasn't considered at all. And that, for example, far more attention was paid to hunting than to how childcare was going to work or those who were pregnant and and those like critically important issues. And then particularly for the NHS, given that it's two thirds women, the workforce, the point that she made or that she felt she had to raise with the NHS about the fact, the obvious fact, that if you buy PPE that is designed for men, that's not going to fit quite a lot of women and that's going to have a big impact on its effectiveness. And given the number of staff in hospitals and in care homes who died because of lack of access to suitable PPE, I think that's going to hit home quite hard. Jim, in terms of the way Number 10 was run, Defenders of Johnson whether his his friends, those who work most closely with him, the the press who support him, will presumably focus on blaming the advisers. And we had a sense, I think, this week of, of how those advisers felt they needed to be quite defensive about their record during this period. But how do you think that is working out for, for Boris Johnson? How has his reputation been affected this week? 
away from all the sort of bad language that we saw from, from WhatsApp messages and, and so on, I think the main and potentially the most damaging allegation here is, is this, this idea that Boris Johnson is, is flip-flopping constantly from one position to another. And I've spoken to people at, at length who work closely with Boris Johnson in the past. It's, it's not up to me to defend him, but I wonder if part of this, so his style of working, they say, he would often take contrary positions deliberately. So he, there's an anecdote I was told about when he went into a meeting with some military generals about having to take some, some military action. And he deliberately started that meeting by saying, right, so we have to take action. What are we going to do? Just to see their response. And he, uh, the way this was told to me, they all agreed with him. And in the second half of the meeting, he turned around and said, look, I, suddenly I've decided I don't want to take action just to see how they would respond. And if they stuck to their positions, he would take one thing from it. If they changed their positions based on what he'd said, he'd take another. Now, if that is your style of working, I wonder what happens when you take that technique and you put it into a crisis like COVID, because that is sort of what Lee Kane, his former press secretary, was was getting at, I think, with some of his testimony this week, when he said he thought this was the wrong crisis for this prime minister's skill set. And I wonder if, if some of that might come out in the future. We'll hear, of course, evidence from Boris Johnson himself at the end of December or the middle of December. So it'd be fascinating what he, to hear what he says when these allegations are put to him. I think this argument that, you know, maybe it would have been different for Johnson if he had different advisers. There's something in that, in that Cummings and, you know, some of the other people around Johnson definitely made the situation worse, not just in the culture that they created, but we know that they also pursued a strategy of, you know, kind of serially undermining key officials attempting to have people move that created a level of churn in the centre of government that is hugely unhelpful at any time, but is particularly unhelpful when you're trying to deal with the kind of novel situation that a global pandemic presents. But I think, you know, in all the work we do here at IFG, one thing we know about effective government is that the prime minister leads the system and the kind of signals that they send the system reverberate throughout. And I think it was, again, in Helen McNamara's evidence that she said, you know, to govern is to choose and that that is right at the heart of the way we think about the prime minister and our system. And that's something that Johnson just wasn't able to do. He constantly veered from one decision to another and changed his mind. And that kind of behaviour in a prime minister, that inability to set priorities and stick to them or make decisions and stick to them, is always going to be a weak point of government, no matter the quality of the advisors around you. So I think that's going to be a very difficult one to for Johnson to, to sidestep. Jim, can you give us a heads up on what we should have to look forward to next week from the COVID inquiry? So it's the second week where they're interviewing civil servants and people who work inside government. So we've just had the witness list actually for next week. And it does look, again, really interesting. So uh, on Monday, for example, Ben Warner, who we've heard a lot about over the last couple of weeks, who is this data scientist who was brought into Downing Street by Dominic Cummings, uh, he'll be giving evidence. He was the person, for example, who Neil Ferguson, the scientist at Imperial College, wrote to, I think, around sort of March the, the 10th, 2020, in a kind of back-channel communications kind of way to, to try to voice his concerns and Ben Warner said he was going to bring those concerns up with the Prime Minister. So it'll be interesting to see what he has to say. And then actually, it's interesting because I was expecting ministers to be interviewed much later. But we're going to start to see ministers next week. So Justin Tomlinson, who was the former Minister of State for Disabled People on Tuesday. And then on Thursday, there's a day that looks specifically at, I think, enforcement during the pandemic. And we'll hear from 
Dame Priti Patel, who was uh, obviously the Home Secretary at the time, but also Martin Hewitt, who's chair of the National Police Chiefs Council. So that could be an interesting day. And I'm sure you'll be looking very closely at Wednesday when uh, now Lord Sedwell, Mark Sedwell, who's the former Cabinet Secretary, until I think September 2020, will be giving evidence. And unusually, he's giving evidence for a full day. They've uh, left aside a morning and an afternoon for him. So another packed, another packed week at the inquiry next week. And Emma, you're, as I said at the start, our inquiries expert. What should we be looking out for in terms of what the inquiry should be doing next? So, I mean, I think there are, there are a couple of, of things. We've talked already about the fact we focus quite a lot on informal evidence. I think getting some of that kind of formal documentation up and, and talking it through as part of the public hearings would be useful. I think there are, there's the interim reports. I mean, we're focusing on the public hearings at the moment. Of course, that's where the energy is. But the thing that's going on behind the scenes is they're writing up the report from Module 1, which we're expecting to be published next spring, and actually landing that well with recommendations that government can hopefully enact almost immediately is a kind of priority that that we need to stay focused on. I think there's also the kind of the bigger how uh, how's the inquiry focusing on making sure that their changes land like throughout the next couple of years. The inquiry is going to run until 2027. And we know that one of the weak points, not just in the COVID inquiry, but in the inquiry process more generally, is that there is absolutely no procedure around that. You produce the report, you put it on government's table, then it's up to them whether they implement them. But there are things an inquiry can do to try and increase the chance that change happens, building relationships with select committees, thinking about the role of the chair once the inquiry is completed, thinking about working with government to establish an independent body that that holds government accountable. And so we're focused on the hearings, but actually there are a whole load of other things that speak to making sure this inquiry actually has impact, which is, of course, what matters most that we need to focus on as well. Okay, let's switch our attention now from the performance of number 10 to the performance of public services. Nick, tell us about the report we published this week. What is Performance Tracker? So Performance Tracker is our data-driven analysis of nine key public services across health and care, local government, education and criminal justice. We look at how spending for those services are changed, their staffing, uh, the work they're doing and how their performance is measuring up. We then look at across those services the, the common factors driving those performance challenges. And we look, don't we, at the relative pressures between those public services, not just at them individually. Yeah, absolutely. We, I think where we try to add most value is looking across all of those services. And while they're, of course, very different, there are a lot of common factors. And the picture isn't great, is it? No, I'm afraid it's really not. So across the nine services we look at, almost all of them are doing worse now than they were on the eve of the pandemic, which again, in most cases, was worse than they were doing a decade earlier in 2009-10. And looking forward, the picture isn't any better. So looking at spending plans for the rest of this parliament, we don't think that any services will be performing better by the end of this parliament than they were on the eve of the pandemic. And looking even further ahead, if you look at the government spending plans from 2025-26 onwards, again, we don't think that those the, the money currently penciled in is sufficient to enable any meaningful performance improvements. And that black hole beyond the next election, do we think that's something that all parties need to be a bit more open about? Yes, absolutely. So, the, num- the numbers that government has penciled in is for a 1% per year real terms increase across from 25, 26 onwards. However, if you take account of commitments 
to defence, to aid, and the amount of money that would be needed to deliver the NHS long-term workforce plan. That means actually cuts of more than 1% for unprotected areas. And the mismatch between that funding and where we expect demand to be is particularly stark uh, in criminal justice, particularly in criminal courts and prisons. And neither main party is currently being honest about the difficult choices that will have to be made after the election and you know it is a legitimate political choice to maintain funding at those levels but the public are going to be very upset about the level of performance that that entails. Jim you've heard from Nick there that most public services are not back to where they were pre-pandemic but do you think that the pandemic is a fair excuse for that struggling performance? Well I thought one thing interesting point looking at the the Covid inquiry this week was hearing evidence from Lee Kane, who was, uh, who was the Director of Communications, obviously, in Downing Street at the time. He was asked about campaigns in particular around COVID. And he um, takes credit, along with an outside agency and other people working in Downing Street, for that famous campaign that had uh, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. And it, it was put to him in the inquiry that that had unforeseen circumstances and some NHS leaders were very unhappy about that at the time because they thought it would stop people with non-COVID com- uh, complaints coming forward to the NHS. And the implication there is that if you look at waiting lists for NHS services at the moment, what are we up to? Kind of 7.75 million people on a waiting list uh, in, in England. That some of that, you know, you saw that spike in waiting lists over the pandemic and it's continued to go up afterwards. That some of that could be could be laid not just at, at the government's actions over the pandemic, but also specifically at that campaign and how it changed people's views and prevented people coming forward. Now, Lee Kane uh, denied that, said it, it worked very well with focus groups. That message and actually their main concern at the time, which is very understandable, was was, was saving lives during the pandemic itself. But I think it, it shows you that some of these decisions that were taken, even about something like one advertising campaign during the pandemic, could obviously have a huge impact afterwards, or potentially have a huge impact afterwards when you look at things like like waiting lists now. I think there's an interesting question about whether people are still paying heed to that message, because actually some of the modelling that was done on the number of people we might have expected to come forward post-pandemic, who didn't during the pandemic, actually far fewer people have come forward than we would have expected. And there's a question of what's happened to that unmet demand. I think the other thing on waiting lists that's worth bearing in mind is that the elective waiting list was already at four and a half million on the eve of the pandemic and had been growing steadily for years already. So while the pandemic has certainly exacerbated the problem, there were pretty long-standing problems, including with workforce and uh, underinvestment in capital that were driving some of the performance issues, particularly in hospitals. Emma, do you think the NHS in particular is going to be an election issue? Yes, to an extent. But I think that cost of living is still going to dominate the election. So I don't think it's going to be a kind of first order election issue. I think one of the challenges for Sunak actually is that the kind of later that you push the election the better the economy gets or so the kind of current data suggests. But as soon as that starts to improve, then actually all the other challenges, for instance, NHS creep up the agenda. So it's kind of whack-a-mole for him. One thing gets better and then actually the other challenges that people might not be as focused on suddenly uh, creep up the agenda. I think there's also something about election timing. And uh, There's obviously lots of conversations at the moment about whether it's going to be next May, next autumn, January 25. If it is in kind of autumn, winter 24, then 
then we know that's the time at which the NHS is under even more pressure than normal. And so I think that timing factor will play into just how kind of real in the in the public consciousness the NHS crisis is. Of course, it's going to feature, but I think exactly how high it does depends on the timing of the election. And Nick, as you were saying, although the NHS is always high profile when we talk about public services, there are other services which are really in trouble and in particular the ones that are unprotected. Yes, and I think criminal justice is probably where some of the pressures are worst at the moment. So in the Crown Courts, we've got a backlog of cases that's currently around 65,000 versus 40,000 on the eve of the pandemic. And when you take account of the fact that those are disproportionately jury trials, which take longer to hear, it's actually the equivalent of more like 90,000 cases. Yeah, you've got a great chart on that I was looking at. I was like, what is this much worse line that yeah. we have on this chart that, that we, we've added in here and it's because the cases are harder ones so they, they're not as quick to deal with. Exactly, it's going to take much longer to clear than it otherwise would and in prisons they are literally a bursting point at the moment and you've got ministers having to consider pretty extreme measures like renting foreign prison cells in order to house people and unfortunately that situation is likely to get worse. One of the kind of few bright points on public services is the government successfully recruited 23 thousand additional police officers which is good for the police and you know hopefully catching criminals it's less good for the downstream public services because we have now seen in the last year and we would expect to continue an increase in the number of charges and more people charged means more people who need to be processed through the courts and ultimately more people who are going to be sent to prison and neither criminal courts nor prisons have remotely enough capacity to deal with that expected increase in demand. And do you think there are things that this government or a future government can do to turn around the productivity of public services? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we say that there's no meaningful fat to trim without causing kind of further performance problems. But that is not to say that there aren't productivity improvements that could be made. We could be delivering better quality services for the same amount of money we're putting in at the moment. But we'd need to take quite a different approach. So you know, services, if they need to improve, they need long-term stable policy, which we haven't had much of. They need long-term stable funding. We probably need to address the long-standing, by which I mean decades, underinvestment in capital. We probably need to better balance our spending between really acute services and more preventative services. And in the short term, we need to bring to an end the strikes that are still ongoing in hospitals with junior doctors and consultants and more broadly address some of the big recruitment and retention challenges because one of the key findings of the report was that services are just less effective than they might be because we've lost quite a lot of experienced staff and they're instead being replaced by kind of newer greener recruits who tend to be less effective. Emma so much of what's in performance tracker just overlaps with themes that the IFG comes back to again and again, ministerial turnover, difficulty with sustaining policy over the long term. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think if there's uh, one kind of common thread that comes out of Performance Tracker and other work, it's the argument that Whitehall, that government has become incredibly short term and reactive particularly over the last kind of six or seven years, over the last decade even. Partly that's because, you know, we've had this kind of series of, of crisis, crises that have forced government into very quick decision making. Um, but we've also seen a kind of political culture, which means we've had constant ministerial turnover in some areas. You know, we've seen, what, five, six different secretaries of state or ministers in, you know, literally under a year, just completely absurd. 
We've seen, you know, tiny short term pots of funding that don't provide any services, the ability to do kind of long term planning. So we've been stuck in this very short termist kind of cycle. And I think the biggest challenge and the most important change needed for whichever kind of future government we end up with is how do you step back from that? How do you, you know, do a spending review that is multi-year that gives services certainty? And how do you create some kind of political and official stability? There is a really strong argument for saying you want the same people in post to see policies and kind of service areas through for years. And actually, we do occasionally look at policy successes at IFG too. And one of the strong messages that comes out of those, you know, whether you're looking at like the Olympics or rough sleeping or automatic enrolment, some of the things that have gone right in the last decade, you've seen political and official teams that have stuck with those policies for years longer than they normally do. And it really has made a difference. And I think it's notable that of the services we look at, schools are the only one where we think performance improved between 0910 and the eve of the pandemic and that is also the one area where we've had a consistent minister for pretty much all of that period in Nick Gibb who's been the schools minister and actually he's also picking up on a much longer term agenda that goes back to Kenneth Baker in the 80s so there's been pretty consistent schools policy for a very long time and it's not a coincidence that that's the one public service that has seen some meaningful performance improvements. That's so interesting. Jim, what are you going to look out for when we see the autumn statement in relation to public services? Well, as a health reporter, I guess it all comes down to what's going on with NHS spending and NHS funding. And you've talked about the workforce plan already. There's some questions about how that is going to be funded. So it'll be really interesting to see what comes across in that. Also, I think you're talking about the politics of the NHS. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens over the winter. A lot of money or some money has got into things like trying to reduce the number of people that are stuck in hospital beds, so so-called delayed discharges this winter. The NHS was under so much pressure last winter. I think politically, if that happens again, that is important for a number of reasons. You know, I was talking about this with someone the other day. Even the timing of the next general election, I think to a certain extent, could depend on the NHS in that respect. You can't see Rishi Sunak wanting to call, for example, a general election in January 2025, if there is any possibility of there being a whole winter's worth of bad headlines, negative headlines about the NHS uh, leading into that moment. So I think going back to your question about the autumn statements, I think it all ties into NHS funding and whether enough can be done in the short term to alleviate some of that pressure over the next couple of winters, especially with these with these elections on the horizon. Okay, let's end by catching up on the story that Rishi Sunak wants us to be talking about, and that's this week's big AI conference. We're joined now by Matthew Gill, IFG Programme Director and our AI Watcher in Chief. Hi, Matthew. Good morning, Hannah. Quick summary, please. What was this summit? Where was it? And who attended? So this was a two-day summit on the 1st and 2nd of November at Bletchley Park, and it was on the subject of AI safety, particular focus on what they call frontier AI, which is looking at the more advanced future-facing AI models. And as a result of that, some of the more extreme, potentially more hypothetical risks that might arise from that. It was attended by a, a small cast list, given the size of Bletchley Park, but in the end, quite a high-profile and influential one. So on the political side, Side, including Kamala Harris, the US Vice President, Ursula von der Leyen from the European Union, and a delegation from 
China controversially. It was also attended by leaders in the technology area, including Elon Musk, uh, Demis Hassabis, uh, and others. And what was Rishi Sunak trying to achieve? Well, I think some people looked at this fairly sceptically when it was first announced as, as an attempt to build a legacy in the context of being a prime minister at the end of a parliament and having a short period of time to do something substantial. And I guess you could look at that cynically, but you could also look at that positively and say that this was something that Sunak could could try and aim to achieve, to start a conversation, to, to kick off something internationally. And I think what we saw, particularly from the conversation with Elon Musk that happened at the end of the summit, is that he really does believe this. And this was clear from what he said before the summit began, that he really believes in the positive opportunities that AI might present for the UK and wants us to be able to take those. In that context, this international conversation is absolutely key because regulation of AI is very difficult to do, particularly in terms of the development of AI technology at a national level. So starting this conversation internationally would have been a key objective of his and something where he wants to put the UK in a leading position. So it was quite a gamble for him. Well, yes. And actually, he was in a difficult position a couple of weeks ago where it wasn't looking certain that the key people were going to turn up. Kamala Harris was only confirmed about 10 days ahead of the event, Ursula von der Leyen even later than that. And the announcement of the conversation with Elon Musk as well came quite late in the day. So so this, this came together, but it came together quite close to the wire and he could have been snubbed by these people. I think also... It was a risk on the technology side of it as well. The conversation with Elon Musk probably by Sunak's lights went went well. It was cordial. Both men were complimentary towards each other, but it might not have been. And it did put Sunak in something of a supplicant kind of position, being the one doing the interviewing. And it did elicit some quite odd comments from Musk in terms of the potential optionality of work in the future and the idea that AI might be our closest friends. So this was this was a strange phenomenon, but but not an unsuccessful one in the end. And what was finally agreed and what happens next? A whole number of things. First of all, a multilateral agreement to test AI models and for government to have access to those to do that, which was previously something that the UK had agreed itself in advance, but this is now this is now international. A cooperation between the UK and American governments on their respective safety institutes with the UK establishing an institute which will have an international focus again to research this technology and to test it. And also a key aim that Suna had going in was to develop an international advisory panel on the development of artificial intelligence, sort of modelled on the intergovernmental panel on climate change, which would then advise on the risk of of frontier AI going forward. So that that has been agreed and the UK is going to provide a secretariat function to that going forward. And one of the early outputs will be a a state of the science report ahead of the next summit that will happen in South Korea uh, in the first half of next year. Then there'll be a third summit in France in about 12 months. So the idea that this is the first of many, again, is another thing that seems to to have paid off. And, you know, if you were Richard Sulak looking at the number 10 news last night and you were seeing effectively almost a, a demonstration of how driverless cars can work on UK roads and a description of how AI can help in curing cancer, you would look at this and say, actually, he's moved the conversation in, in, in a direction that he was hoping to move it before the summit. And so for him, it probably looks like quite a successful event. Emma, do you sense that this is Sunak going for a legacy or trying to distract or something he is just genuinely interested in? 
I think it's going for a legacy and something that he's genuinely interested in. I think it's um, it's interesting looking at some of the things Sunak has come out with over the last couple of months. We've started to get a hint of some of the things he actually cares about and a desire to do some of those with what he's going to be remembered for in mind, If given that there is, you know a pretty reasonable chance of him losing the next election. Um, I think AI is an example of that. He's always been interested in this area. He's clearly keen to be seen as a kind of international convener and leader in this space. So I think he certainly has his legacy in mind. I think actually the anti-smoking policy announcements at conference were another example of him thinking about his his legacy and what the kind of policy offer he wants to be remembered for are. So I think absolutely it's something he's interested in and something that he wants to be remembered for. And this is what we often see in this cycle with Prime Minister that, you know, you get closer to a general election where there is, you know, reasonable chance of, of, of losing of losing power. And they do start to think not just about what's the kind of policy mix that is going to potentially win us an election, but what's the policy mix that I want to be remembered for personally. Jim, I won't ask you to go into the technical detail, but in terms of AI innovations in the health sector, are they real and are they happening? All I can tell you is that a number of press releases that I get sent from <laughs> AI companies working in the health sector is is huge uh, at the moment. I do think they are real and I, I do think it's important. I think the NHS is has been quite slow to put in place some of these new technologies that are coming through, but you really notice it now. I was at a hospital in Blackpool recently that had managed to hit all its targets for skin cancer checks because they were using medical photographers to take photographs of skin cancer and using that as a way to increase the number of of photographs that could be seen by their dermatologists and therefore cutting waiting times down. They were hitting all their waiting targets. And they were talking about how the next step up there is rather than getting the dermatologists to to look at the photos, everything was going to go through an AI system first. But just I think the culture within the health service that has to change to make that possible is quite a big leap, not just among the doctors. And there is some concern, I think, from people that, you know, as a result of this, jobs could be lost and so on, but but also from patients as well. I think patients have got to be completely reassured that using AI in this way does produce better results than doctors looking at your scans. Because when it comes to something like patient safety, there's still a squeamishness about too much automation and too much reliance on machines in that area. So it's not just about the technology, it's about the cultural change as well. Nick, going back to your report, do you think we're going to hear a lot more from politicians ahead of the election talking about technology as a way to make savings and increase productivity? I I do. And I um, think we'll probably hear sooner than that. So Jeremy Hunt in his speech at Conservative Conference flagged that the Treasury was doing some work on public sector productivity. And we are expecting some announcements at the autumn statement later this month. And indeed, I can say for the first time that we have John Glenn, the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, appearing here on the 30th of November to talk about that. So I think we will hear a lot. And I definitely think there is a important role for technology. As Jim said, there are some opportunities for AI. In many cases, though, the technology that we need is a bit more basic than that. You know, we've got large parts of the NHS running very old scanners, for example, with far fewer scanners than equivalent countries elsewhere in the world. And if you talk to doctors, they'll often tell you things like they come in in the morning and it takes 20 minutes for their PC to turn on. So yes, technology, but sometimes it's the less less whizzy technology, more basic technology that's going to make a bigger impact on productivity. 
That's it for today. Thank you to Emma Norris, Nick Davies, Matthew Gill, and especially to Jim Reed. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. Do subscribe and please do leave us a review. A quick plug too for our new podcast, why not join the listeners who are flooding over to The Expert Factor, a new joint pod with Paul Johnson of the IFS and Anna Menon of UK in a Changing Europe. It's an expert deep dive into the big issues and questions facing British politics right now. Do check it out. And head to our website to read Performance Tracker, all 300 fascinating, if depressing, pages of it. And check out our COVID Inquiry live blog. We'll be back next week when Parliament returns with the King's Speech and some more drama at the COVID Inquiry. Have a good weekend, everyone.